Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time as the UK government announces plans for an independent football regulator, how well governed and regulated is sport internationally? We're going to be looking at how Saudi Arabia in particular is extending its global geopolitical reach through football, golf and e-sports, despite numerous well-documented human rights abuses. We're talking about mass executions, people jailed for tweets, questioning government policy, and of course the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018 at the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Despite all of that, the repressive regime of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, has effectively been guaranteed the right to host the 2034 Soccer World Cup after its only rival, Australia, dropped out. And that's only part of a wider agenda to sportswash Saudi Arabia's reputation and income through sport. We're joined now by Stanis Ellsborg, who has been investigating this for an organisation called Play the Game. They're based at the Danish Institute for Sports Studies, which aims to raise the ethical standards and to promote democracy, transparency and freedom of expression in world sport. Stanis, hi, welcome. People in the UK, and I'm sure listeners to this podcast will have heard about sports washing. We've got Newcastle United, perhaps, as a prime example that we've covered previously on this podcast. But what you have done is chart the astonishing number of tentacles of Saudi sporting influence around the globe. I want to talk about that in detail. But the mainspring of all this activity seems to be a project called Vision 2030. Just tell us about that. Yeah, Vision 2030 is actually the national development plan, which was launched by Mohammed bin Salman in 2016. It's very close connected to the sports strategy and overall represents this comprehensive reform process of both Saudi Arabia's economic, political and social structures. And the end goal, of course, is to establish themselves as the Middle Eastern sports hub, but also the economic and tourism hub. But overall, they want to be a major player on the global sports and geopolitical states. And Vision 2030 is the key to that. And of course, we're looking at a future beyond fossil fuels. I mentioned in my introduction that this isn't just about reputational sports washing. This is about mapping out a future for Saudi Arabia without necessarily having to rely on oil. Yeah, so they very well know that the oil won't be there forever. So they have to look for new kind of investments and where they can get money in. But I also think it's very important to stress that this Vision 2030 and the sports strategy is about a lot more than sports washing. In fact, I'm not very happy about the term because I don't really think it encapsulates what Saudi Arabia is really doing in these times. And that is that they are using sport to serve diplomatic, political and also sporting interests and in the end to cover up their human rights issues. So tell me about some of the discoveries you've made then about just how far reaching these tentacles of Saudi influence go. What we really tried to do in our research was to have a look at who were the key figures in the sports strategy and what were the numbers in terms of sponsorships into the world of sport. And we can get the numbers for a start. So we have at least 
300 sponsorships into the world of sport coming from different kind of Saudi entities. It can be state-owned companies, the ministry, it can be the sports organizations. We wanted to do this because when we looked at the debate around the Qatar 2022 World Cup, most of the debate, if not all of it, were centered around human rights issues, which was a good thing. Finally, we talked about sport and human rights at the same time, but we also think that we kind of missed some of the other issues at hand when we looked at international sport, and that could be governance and conflicts of interest. So we have tried to map the inner circle behind Saudi Arabia's sports strategy. Who are the people? Where do they sit? Who do they represent? And what companies do Saudi Arabia really engage into the world of sport? And it showed numerous conflicts of interest and threats to the integrity of sport. Just give us a sample of what you mean then. We can take the key figure in the sports strategy, at least according to my perspective and my analysis, and that will be Yasia Al-Rumayang. Most people interested in football will know about him as he is the chairman of Newcastle United, the president of the Saudi Arabian Golf Federation, and is also the chairman of Aramco, the governor and a board member of the Public Investment Fund the real owners of Newcastle United. That is Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, which is headed by Mohammed bin Salman. And if we take Yassi Al-Rumayn for an example, he can travel the world where he is supposed to be a representative of Saudi Arabian sport, but in a split second, he can switch his role and be the chairman of the third largest company in the world, the state-owned oil company Aramco, or he can be the governor of the public investment fund. So he has a decision-making power that no other sports leader has when he travels the world. So one example which will illustrate this quite clear is that Saudi Arabia launched this new airline company a while ago called Riyadh Air. It's actually a subsidiary of the public investment fund. So it is funded by the public investment fund. The chairman of that new airline is also Yasia Al-Humayang. And Riyadh Air, of course, wants to create new routes throughout the world for the new airline. So what they did, and that's where sports come in, is that they haven't even begun to fly yet, but they are already the main sponsor of Atletico Madrid, the big Spanish football club. And the reason why they do this, at least in my point of view, is that that's not because they are that concerned about Atletico Madrid. That's because Madrid is a very important airport in a European context, and they want to expand their influence in that area. They want to create new deals in Madrid, and Yasia Al-Rumayang can do that. He will travel as a representative of the sport, but in fact, he is serving the interest of the state of Saudi Arabia. And the other state-owned airline of Saudi Arabia is Saudia, main sponsor of Newcastle United. It's important to note here as well, isn't it, that in a state like Saudi Arabia, nobody ascends to those positions without the say-so of MBS. In the West, we may be familiar with entrepreneurs who may run successful companies who may or may not be in agreement with the government of the day. But it is impossible to imagine with Al-Rumayan's position operating without getting the nod 
from MBS. It's unthinkable that he yes. would be acting independently. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is controlled and under the watchful eye of Mohammed bin Salman. They won't do anything that he doesn't applaud. And so he is controlling all of it, but he is not micromanaging their sports strategy. I would believe that's someone else, the next layer of their sports strategy, because we know a lot about Mohammed bin Salman and his interest and engagement in world sport. But what we also wanted to do with our research was to highlight some of the more less known figures in the sports strategy who play a very vital role in enhancing Saudi Arabia's influence in international sport. And Yassi Al-Rumayang is one of them. And, you know, it was Mohammed bin Salman who called him, at least that's how the story goes, in 2015. They wanted uh, Yassi Al-Rumayang to help him succeed in their vision 2030 and their sports strategy. If Saudi Arabia, as a very wealthy nation, wanted to launch an airline with European routes, presumably it could seek to do that without sponsoring a football club in Madrid. So what is it about sport that attracts them and makes them regard it as some kind of key to economic advancement beyond the sport itself? Yeah, if Saudi Arabia really wanted to make any trade deals or routes to Spain, they would succeed in the end without sponsoring Atletico Madrid. I agree on that. But the important thing about sport and why so many state leaders engage in the world of sport is that they can use sport to go under the normal political radar. So usually an agreement between let's say, two state leaders, Mohammed bin Salman and another state leader, or let's say a figure like Yassi Al-Roman as a chairman of the state-owned oil company would be much more official meetings. But when they use sport, they can travel like a representative of sport. They can sit in the VIP lounge at a Formula One Grand Prix or the World Cup, drink a glass of champagne, and they will have access to very, very important political figures, but also business people in the world of sport. So they get an access as both a representative of Saudi Arabian sport, but most importantly, as a representative of Ramco or the Public Investment Fund. So that's why they are so interested in also hosting big sporting events, because they can invite head of states in more informal settings, not those highly covered state visits. When they host big sporting events, they get all the state leaders to come and have a glass of champagne. And that's perhaps why you took issue with my rather lazy use of the word sports washing. Sports washing is about boosting your image through sport. Clearly, that is part of it for a horribly repressive regime like Saudi Arabia. There is the financial development access of it, but there is then also this geopolitical element too. And by hosting major sporting events, by being involved in major sporting events, you're invited to the top table. You may even be the host of the top table. And that gives you a level of informal political access, which actually may weigh much more heavily than a formal staged meeting between political leaders. Yes, absolutely. But I also think that Saudi Arabia is using sports to reshape the regime's reputation. From You mentioned it yourself in the beginning, from the brutal killing of journalist Kamal Jashoki, the execution of 81 people in a single day last year, 
the imprisonment of many women rights activists in the country. So I also think they are using to reshape their image. But sports also offer this unique arena to operate under this, what I call normal political radar. And it serves as a means to foster these new diplomatic relations where they can negotiate new trade agreements, entice tourism, they can establish valuable connections within the global political landscape, and they can do that in the VIP lounges. And you've mentioned Yasir Al-Rumayan. Who are some of the other key characters then in this network of Saudi officials promoting their interest through sport? It would be no surprise, and I don't think that's a huge story in our research, but of course, the Minister of Sport is central for the sports strategy. It would be kind of odd if he wasn't. But when you look at the Minister of Sport in Saudi Arabia, he has numerous positions in the world of sport, but he also is a board member in very, very important companies that are trying to promote sport in Saudi Arabia, but also trying to create sporting events build stadiums. So he is in a lot of affiliations in Saudi Arabia. Two more that I would like to highlight. One of them is Princess Rima, who is a member of the royal family. She is also a member of the International Olympic Committee, and she is also the ambassador to the United States. So she can also act on behalf of Saudi Arabian sports politics, but also serve as a diplomat in the United States where she can pull the strings in terms of creating new diplomatic relationships between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And lastly, I would like to mention the Minister of Tourism, who I believe is a very, very central person in the country's very strategic approach to sport, because the culture and entertainment activities has become key when we look at Saudi Arabia. One thing is to gain goodwill from the international society, but they also have a Saudi Arabian population that they have to give something else when they can't give them normal political rights and freedom rights. So they have to offer them something else. And that is entertainment activities and sport is a part of that, but also music, art, museums, and so on. And he is also in so many different companies that Saudi Arabia engages into the world of sport. We've talked about the Public Investment Fund, and we've noted more than 300 Saudi Arabian sponsorships. And I think half of them is either directly from the Public Investment Fund or from a subsidiary of the fund. And I think that was one of our key findings. We knew about the fund and all their investments and engagement into Newcastle and other parts of sport. But it kind of surprised me how many subsidiaries under the public investment fund that were also engaged in the world of sport. In Newcastle United's case, a binding assurance was given that the Saudi government would not control the investment in the football club. Given what you've researched, about Saudi Arabian sport, is it feasible to think that at some level, Newcastle United is not controlled by the Saudi government, by MBS? No, and I think the key word here is controlled, because I agree that on a day-to-day basis, it is the management in Newcastle that runs the club. Of course, it is. But the chairman is Yasi Al-Rumayang. He is also on the board of the Public Investment Fund. 
where the chairman is Mohammed bin Salman. So the owner of Newcastle United is the Sovereign Wealth Fund Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, whose chairman is Mohammed bin Salman. So I can't understand how anyone can believe or these binding legal assurances that it is not controlled by the state. Of course it is. You mentioned the Saudi public. Is there an element of this exercise which is designed perhaps to persuade them that there is a modernizing agenda, which at least some people in Saudi Arabia would welcome? Yeah, of course there is. But you could also ask, can you on one hand give people some rights? We hear a lot of academics out there talking about reforms of Saudi Arabia. People are now allowed to drive a car. They can go to the cinema. But on the other hand, we also hear that the people who have been speaking out loud about these reforms, wanting to get people to drive cars, are now jailed. So, yes, I believe that there are reforms in Saudi Arabia who allow people to drive a car and go to a football match and so on. But in the end, I think we have to agree that we are talking about a regime with severe human rights issues. We talked yeah. about some of them earlier, but we could also mention the Human Rights Watch report in September, where they showed that there were hundreds of unarmed Ethiopian migrants that were killed at the Yemen-Saudi border. I would love that the Saudi Arabian population could get all the sporting activities in the world. That's not the main issue here. The main issue that the people who are driving the sports strategy and the reforms is an autocratic regime who doesn't do it for the sake of sport, but for the sake of their geopolitical reasons. We spoke on this podcast to Lena Al-Hathlul, whose sister tweeted about the right of women to drive in Saudi Arabia. Now, this was something that MBS had announced that was a plan and I think has now come to pass, but it was still regarded as beyond acceptable behavior for a woman to make a political tweet, even if it was in agreement with government policy. She's no longer in prison. It should be said, Lena Al-Hathlul's sister, but it's a, a sign of how repressive the country is that even tweeting in support of government policy, if you're a woman, can land you in jail. Yeah, I don't get the chance very often, but let me just applaud Lena's work. She is amazing and everyone out there should follow her. She did a tweet the other day. I can't remember the exact wording, but she said something like, my family has been banned from leaving Saudi Arabia for six years or something, while the whole world is now invited to dance and watch football in the country. Can we really talk that positively about all the sporting activities, all their investment in world of sports? That's what the regime wants us to talk about. That's Cristiano Ronaldo. That's Neymar. That's Benzema. And for people who don't know, these are the star European soccer players who have been lured to Saudi Arabia. Jordan Henderson, an England international, another one of them, who has previously been outspoken in defence of LGBT plus rights but who nevertheless has accepted a contract to play in Saudi Arabia. There are these strange contradictions as well running through it. I note that the golf tour, which Saudi Arabia has promoted, part of their pitch, if you'll pardon the pun, is to promote women's golf. 
the idea that Saudi Arabia would be through this series promoting women's golf on the European tour whilst denying its own women basic human rights feels absurd. What's more absurd is that you're talking about the Aramco team series. Aramco, just to mention it again, is the state-owned oil company where Yassi al Roman is the chairman. That's a five-series event held in five different countries all over the world. They also have what is called the Aramco Saudi Ladies International, which is being held in Jeddah, the Saudi Arabian city. And both events are sanctioned tournaments on the ladies' European tour. Well, you've said it yourself. They are really trying to promote women's sports. And you could argue in itself, that's a good thing, right? So Saudi Arabia is pouring a lot of money into women's sports. And we will see that even more in the years to come. There's rumor about their interest in hosting the Women's World Cup in football as well. But can you then, on the other hand, restrict rights on women in your own country and promote women's sport? That's why Princess Rima is such a central figure, because on one hand, she is also symbolizing female empowerment in Saudi Arabia as a diplomat in the United States, as a member of the International Olympic Committee. But then you go to the country and women and men are not equal. There will be people perhaps listening to this who say, look, Saudi Arabia is not a Western country. It's got a different tradition. It's got a different culture. And uh, there is something very arrogant about wanting to impose Western values upon a country like Saudi Arabia. What would you say? First of all, I would say that I'm an educated historian. So if people want to travel to Saudi Arabia and experience their history and culture, I'm all for that. But it's not me who has invented your values of sport. That's the international sports organizations. What I'm trying to point out is that if you want to live up to those values about inclusion, equality, room for all, LGBTQ community, sport should use its power. So it is not me trying to impose my little democratic values here from Denmark. But when we look into the world of sport, I would argue that it would be better for the world of sport to be based on democratic processes than allowing autocratic regimes into the world of sport. And that's what we are seeing these days. We see it in the awarding of the World Cup. In one month, Saudi Arabia will be hosting the Club World Cup in football. The process about that, we don't know. It was just decided in the FIFA Council. You know, I'm not thinking that in one year we have transformed Saudi Arabia into a democracy. But when you engage in world of sport, they don't escape how they engage in processes and good governance. You have to stick to those values. And Saudi Arabia is not in line with those values and rules. Stanis, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. And people can head over to the website of Play the Game and read much more about your research and that of your colleagues. And I would urge them to do so. My name is Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. This is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper. You can subscribe to it, get details at bylinetimes.com, or you can buy it now at selected newsstands as well. So do see if you can find it at your local news agent. Certainly some branches of Waitrose and some major railway station news agents should have it. But the surest way is to take out a subscription, and that helps fund this podcast, as I say. So go to Byline Times. 
www.harveyaudio.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production produced by me and Harvey White in Birmingham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.